Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. But let's pray before we dive into God's word. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that we are not left without hope, and that even though there are powers at play in our hearts and in our world, there is one who has come who is greater than all of it. So Lord, I pray that that darkness-breaking power is manifested today through the simple, profound act of faith in Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. So even though I kind of just gave us a preface on something, I'm gonna begin with a little bit of a roadmap of what to expect in the next few months here at Sovereign Hope. Beginning next week and rolling through December, we're gonna have our Advent series, which includes a Christmas Eve service here on Saturday at 4.30, and it also includes our Christmas morning gathering. And so we will be here on Christmas morning. It'll be a shorter service than normal. Kids will be with us, and we want it to be really familial. So come and join us for that. But then, beginning in the new year, we're going to begin an eight-week series that is designed to help us read our Bibles better. Many of you already have the Sovereign Hope reading app. If you just go to your app store and search for Sovereign Hope, we have a Bible reading app. That got some updates this week. You can now get notifications. Uh, You can set a time as to when you want it to remind you to read God's Word, and then uh, it reminds you, you can open up and the passages for the day are right there. It's also got our podcast feed baked into the app. And so I know a lot of community groups listen to the sermons um, and do discussions on there. And so it's all one place for that. We're finishing a Bible reading plan December 31st. And then beginning January 1st, anyone who wants to participate with us, um, we're going to be together uh, doing a Bible reading plan that takes us through the whole of the Bible in two years, reading two chapters a day. There's Bible memory baked into the app and things like that. But in order to help us with this, we're doing this eight-week series to prepare us to read the Bible in full to do two things. One, to give us a clear sense of the singular story of Scripture. The Bible doesn't only contain books. The Bible is a book. It's a single story of a God who set forth to create and to redeem people for his glory and for our good. And we want to help you see that. But secondly... The point of reading scripture is not simply to know things about God, but to be transformed by God. And so we'll talk about how when we're reading in different genres of literature in scripture, different places, that we actually are able to apply that to our own lives devotionally, not just for the sake of passing a theology exam. But what that means is today is our last sermon in the Gospel of Luke until late February. And we're entering a portion in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 11, where the author is beginning to highlight opposition to Jesus in his ministry. Jesus is continuing to do amazing things and teach revolutionary truths about himself and the kingdom of God, and there are all sorts of responses. And if you remember, Jesus prepared us for this in the parable of the sower earlier in Luke. Wherever the gospel is preached, today in this room, there are those who will hear and believe, those who will have their hearts hardened, those who have temporary fruit, and those who will have abiding joy. But in today's text, we see scoffers respond to a specific miracle of Jesus with this question. How do we know this is true? How do we know you actually did this? Is this a scam? And this is a good question for all of us to consider, not only in spiritual things, but in all things in life. How do you assess the validity, the truthfulness of a work? How do you know if something is authentic? or if it's a false bill of goods or a sham. 
as a football fan, I know that I often see on social media players posting a notice about a random drug testing that comes a day after that player had the best game of their life. And it's funny because it's as if to say, look at how good this, this player did, and then the league is like, it must be steroids. The IRS has means and ways of red flagging if you've got uh, tax-deductible donations that skyrocket over the course of the year. They flag it and they audit it. Why? It must be fraud, they say. Maybe you have recently come to faith and you've shared that with your coworkers and they might say, well, you must have had a close experience with death. Maybe you had a loved one who died and this is just a fad, an awareness of the frailty of our existence and nothing more than that. Or maybe you've noticed someone who has seen in their own walk with Jesus an increased zeal for holiness. Their Netflix habits are changing. What they're eating and how they're drinking has shifted. They're more zealous for Bible reading. They're loving things like Leviticus. And you say, it must be legalism, as you think in your heart. So how do you discern a true work of God? This is something Jesus is going to answer for us today in Luke chapter 11. He's going to give us things to look for that signify a true work of God. But more than simply equipping you with what to look for in the lives of others, Jesus is actually going to give you experiences which you should be looking for in your own life today. And the main point we're going to see is this, is that the gospel comes in power and in permanence. The gospel of the kingdom comes in power and in permanence. And we're going to see this in two parts. First, in verses 14 through 23, we're going to see that Jesus comes not just in division, but in domination over the powers of darkness. And then in verses 24 through 28, we're going to see that Jesus comes not only in renovation, cleaning up what's out of place, but in revolution, inserting a new authority. As we begin today, we'll open with a little bit of context as Luke gives us this in verses 14 through the first part of 17. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts said to them, and we'll continue in a moment. So if you were with us last week, it shouldn't be lost on us, if you have our Bibles open, where Jesus ended in Luke eleven thirteen, and where our passage today begins in Luke eleven fourteen. Jesus begins to share with his disciples how they ought to pray, how they ought to speak to their father, and then what does Jesus do immediately? He opens the mouth who has no spiritual capacity to speak. Everything Jesus asks from his followers, he provides for them in his salvation. And so Jesus opens the mouth of this man and people are amazed. This is a miracle. This is a man who was not only possessed spiritually by a demon, but manifested with a physical muteness. And yet the crowd, some marveled and some scoffed. They responded with two challenges and you can perhaps see those two challenges in your text. The second question is one that we're going to return to in late February. And this is the challenge that seeks further validation. They seek a sign from heaven that Jesus is legitimate. The irony of this request is that standing in front of these people is the greatest sign they will ever see. 
You see, it is far more earthly, far more ordinary, far more casual for a demon to leave a man. Far more plausible that rocks would be turned into bread. Far more understandable that a lame man would somehow begin to walk than it would be for the eternal son of God who existed in perfect communion in heaven, took on flesh and was simultaneously fully God and fully man. And yet that is who Jesus is standing in front of them. There is no greater sign, there is no greater apologetic for the Christian faith than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But they can't see it. But today, Jesus is going to spend the majority of his time unpacking the first challenge they give, which is the challenge of he cheated. That Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul was this kind of nickname that the Jews gave to Satan, to the forces of darkness. And therefore, what these skeptics in the crowd are thinking is that these demons that Jesus is casting out, they're just plants. Have you, any of you ever been to a, like a motivational conference or a magic show, and there's so obviously someone who is a plant? And that's someone who is in the audience, just like you, but they're not actually audience members. They're with the show. Their job is to laugh louder than anyone else, to gasp when you should be gasping. It's to vindicate and validate the performer themselves. And so maybe these people are thinking here that Jesus has come to simply cast out demons to deceive people all under the guise of Satan while simultaneously he's casting out Satan. And don't we here see the length at which an unbelieving heart will go to to deny the truths of the gospel? I listened to a professor of philosophy at the University of Montana speak once and said that even if the sun and the whole heavens paused in the sky for a season, she would find it more likely that an alien life force came and froze time and history than it would be for her to believe that a God existed. This is how warped this claim is that Jesus is working on behalf of the devil. And what's interesting is we see immediately as readers of this how foolish it looks. Because just as these men are pondering in their hearts whether Jesus is legitimate or not, Jesus being fully divine already knows what's in their hearts. He knows their argument without them ever saying it. And it's this divine validation of knowing what's in their heart that leads into his first point of teaching, which is this, that Jesus comes not just in division, but in domination. Jesus comes not just in division, but in domination. We see this in verse 17 through 20. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus appeals to these scoffers first by using the simplicity of logic. And what's his logic? Division never helps. How many of you have been kids? Great. How many of you are kids? Okay, who knows the sinful tendency we have in our hearts, and maybe this is my kids are still working through their Halloween candy because we're so healthy. And, uh, and if you want the Reese's and you go ask dad, can I have a Reese's? And dad says no, what do you immediately seek to do? 
to go ask mom. Why? Because if you can divide them, you win. Military manuals throughout the centuries and millennia have been written teaching armies to win by the tactic of dividing and conquering. Who cares how it happens, whether it's physical separation of of troops, political insurrection, the seeding of a civil war, even varying love interests amongst the commanders, division never brings peace. It only brings problems. How significant is this division? So significant that look at how Paul speaks of it in the context of the church in Titus 3 verse 10. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him. Verse 11 continues saying, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The church, generally speaking in the New Testament, is a place of long-suffering grace. But here, division and the divisive person scheming against unity is so deadly, so dangerous, that it gets fast-tracked for the church to deal with it. That it's better to put that person out of the church, to have nothing to do with them, than for that division to remain. The church, which is loved by Jesus, purchased by Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit, the plan of God would fall if they failed to obey this command. How much more? The sham realm of the devil, if division reigned. Jesus says to them, are you so foolish to think that Satan would divide his own forces like this? Do you really think that by taking a big L in the public square that Satan walks away stronger? You might make great skeptics, but you're terrible strategists. And he presses this even more by appealing to some Jewish exorcists that were doing work in the area, genuinely casting out demons. And he challenges them. He says, if I do it by Beelzebul, by whom do your servants do it? And here he's trapped them because it forces them to say, well, they do it by the power of God. But if they're doing it by the power of God, why can't Jesus do it by the power of God? Or they say, well, they're doing it by the power of Satan. And in so doing, they invalidate their own ministry. And Jesus, who is always smarter than us, Jesus, who always knows what's at the heart of all of our critiques, pushes to make his point in Luke 11, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus does this work by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The phrase the finger of God not only communicates God's immense power, his finger is stronger than all the forces of spiritual darkness in this, but it's also a phrase that's steeped in biblical weight. The phrase, the finger of God, was not merely a part of God, but it was representative of the spirit of God. Don't forget that that's the context. Right before this, Jesus, for the first time, publicly preached on the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And in Matthew's account of this story, he substitutes as interchangeably the finger of God with the spirit of God. They are one and the same. In other words, this act that Jesus just performed of casting a demon to the curb is not a disassociated act Um, a, a disassociated act attributed to God as if it were a tool, but it was in fact the very power of God the Father flowing through God the Holy Spirit and wielded by God the Son. What was just witnessed was an immensely triune power that was brought to bear in this moment. This is bringing a bazooka to a super soaker fight. This was the greatest power 
of the person of the Godhead just displayed. But even more than that, this phrase calls us to remember another demonstration of God's power. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses, as the hand of God, brought 10 plagues and many miracles upon the Egyptian people. And many of the Egyptian priests were able to replicate some of these miracles by the same forces of darkness that are at work in this text. But after the third plague happened, the Egyptian priests were unable to imitate it. And look at what these pagan priests said in Exodus 8 verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Jesus is subtly saying to these Jews, these Jewish leaders, these ones who we'll see in a little bit are most likely Pharisees, that even the pagans of Egypt were able to recognize the finger of God when they saw it. And you are so blind, you don't know what's standing right in front of you. The blindness of your heart has made you worse than the pagan rulers who enslaved you. Last week, we saw that it was after this powerful display of the finger of God that the Israelites sang after the Exodus, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, awesome in deeds, doing wonders. God's power is always revealed, or is always meant to reveal his identity. What God does drives us to who God is. And here Jesus says that if he is doing this by God's power, then something greater than the Exodus is happening. And this is the beauty of, in the Exodus, God brought his people out. They exited. Look at that. Isn't that neat? Uh, They exited Egypt. They were brought out of a kingdom in promise of a future kingdom. But here the exodus is inverted. God is not bringing them out of a kingdom, but God is bringing his kingdom. His kingdom is there, not just in the person of the kingdom, not just because Jesus is there, but where Jesus is, where God is, is the full power and presence of the kingdom of God. That in this moment when Jesus was on earth, it broke into history. It broke into time and space. And where Jesus was, the forces of darkness stood no chance. Why? Because the kingdom had come. It was in full HD color before all of their eyes. And they missed it. And so Jesus develops this point another level with this short parable, verses 20 through 23. But if I cast out, but if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. For whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, Jesus came not to divide between two equal parties, but with the dominion of the kingdom behind him. He came to dominate, to plunder, and to bind the forces of darkness. He gives us illustration of a strong man. And this should cause us fear. He's a strong man in and of himself. He's got armor on and it says he's fully armed. He has all the armaments. He is the flying fortress. He's got guns like transformers popping out of his body. And what does he do? He lives in a fortress. 
He guards his palace. And what does he do? He guards his goods. His strength, his weapons, his fortress are guarding his goods. And his goods are safe. Now in this illustration, it's the forces of darkness. It's the devil that's the strong man. So what are his goods? What are the people in this text who are in... Well, I just answered my question. Dang, there. Now you know. <laughs> the things in this text that are dominated are people. It is the demon-possessed man. It is the Pharisees whose hearts are spiritually in bonded. We are the goods in this analogy. And so this is important because when God talks of spiritual blindness in his people Israel, in the book of Isaiah... Notice how he talks about this spiritual blindness. And I want you to hear if there are any echoes of this in Luke 11 today. Isaiah 42, verse 22. Let them bring them. Oh, 42, I'm in 41. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder. They've become goods with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Those who are blind to God are a people held as plunder by the force of the strong man. But did you notice, let's notice here, the experience of the goods in Luke. Look at Luke eleven twenty one. What's the experience of the goods? They are safe. Notice how Jesus puts it. He doesn't say the strong man is safe. He doesn't say the fortress is safe. He says the goods are safe. Let each of us be wary of a security that sits well in our lives, which is no security at all. Not all safety is good safety. Not all experiences of comfort is good comfort. Just because your life seems to be at peace is no indication that you are truly safe. What matters is not the peace you hold in experience, but the character of the one who holds your life. There is a worldly safety, a worldly security, which experientially blinds us to the danger we're in. So long as you're comfortable, whispers the devil, you'll never know what's coming. You're safe. You're well provided for. The fortress is big. The guard is at the gate. Be comfortable and be at ease. And just as Isaiah says, there is none wise enough when under this illusion to say, rescue us. Everyone is numb in their comfort and safety. But look at what Jesus says about himself in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Behind the seeming safety of life can be the thief who thinks only of your demise, but the stronger man comes. The hopes of those who sit in the false comfort of their spiritual blindness will be awakened by fear. The strong man wages war. The strong man tears down defenses. But the might of that strong man is for your deliverance, to give life and life abundantly. 
This man is so disruptive that he strips security not from the goods, but from the demon. What Satan trusts in is put to open shame by the strong man who comes in this text. And he comes not merely to save you, but to do what? To keep you. To divide you as plunder for his own possession. To have you and to have you eternally. So how do we apply this portion to our lives? Well, we must be on guard against the devil. First Peter tells us that in First Peter 5. Proverbs 30, we looked at last week, teaches us to guard ourselves against false comforts. Think of your comforts right now. Are they comforts that blind you to the state of your soul? Are they comforts that lead you to rejoice in the strong man who comes? But we must remember, as we see in this text, that despite our ability to resist and to be wise, that the devil and his demons are real, and they are really stronger than us. If you remember back to Luke chapter 8, we saw a demon-possessed man, and the whole town tried to save him, and they couldn't, not by their might. Your logic, your birthright, your education, your nationality, your church, your D-group, your community group, none of that can save you from this blind captivity as long as darkness remains in your watchtower. You see, the subtlety of spiritual blindness is not that we don't see Jesus. Jesus was there, and they were critiquing him. They believed in Jesus. The subtlety of spiritual blindness is not that you don't see Jesus. It's that you don't see Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do. If you're spiritually blind, if you're one who can't see your exclusive need for Jesus in your life, you don't need a nudge in the right direction. You don't need a door left slightly ajar so that you could dupe the guards and escape on your own. You need a rescue from sin and a rescue from death by the only one strong enough to do it, Jesus Christ. You see, the scales of history are not mere division. It's not on one side you have those who live life and follow Jesus. On the, on the other side, you have those who follow other things or those who like Jesus and those who don't like Jesus. It's that Jesus being Lord of hosts, that is Lord of armies himself, has come to put evil in its place once and for all. This is not a battle of two equal sides. This is not a debate between competing worldviews or moralities. It is a battle between those who would be delivered by the merit of the strong man and those who will be overcome by his judgment for all who stand against him. Whoever is not with him is against him. Whoever is not saved by the strength of his hands is condemned by the strength of his hands. Whoever does not gather and participate with him is one who scatters against him. This text presents both security and caution. Are you one to whom the power of God has come upon you in this man, Jesus Christ? Because he will come. He will come one day and all who stand apart from him will experience his judgment. But he has come already once so that all who are saved by him might be secured by him. Paul tells us the power of this man is manifested for us in one place. 
Do you know that one place? It is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Paul says, it is the power of God. The gospel is nothing if it is not powerful. It is powerful enough to cast Satan to the curb and to one day seal him away for all eternity. Has that power invaded your life? Have you come to faith in Jesus, the greater, stronger man? If so, what can you expect from the rest of your life? This is where Jesus continues with his second point this morning. And this is where Jesus comes not only in renovation, but in revolution. Not only in renovation, but in revolution. Read with me verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the houses swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, this is an odd text, if we don't read it carefully. In fact, if you miss the main point of it, this is a text that can lead us to some pretty severe paranoia, can't it? Have you ever been paranoid about your standing before God? Have you ever questioned your conversion? Have you ever woke up and wondered if God really loves you? And if you have, I want to encourage you that this text speaks to you. If you haven't, I would maybe call you to consider that perhaps you also have a false comfort. Are you like one in this text who assumes that you're good because you're good? The house is clean, the chairs are in order, there's no criminal investigation in your past, There's no skeletons in your closet, no stains on your carpet. Perhaps maybe your parents and even your grandparents were Christian. Everything is in order. Why should I doubt? I've done what's necessary. But there are others who look around and see those same signs of external cleanliness that maybe you boast in. And they have this concern. Will it last? Was this a true work? Is the power of God that was sufficient yesterday going to be sufficient tomorrow? Will the work of God always be enough? Or at the end of all things, will I find myself worse than before? This is why we must understand this text. We understand this text because it shows, first of all, the danger of anything less than Jesus' total salvation. There is great danger in anything less than Jesus' total salvation. And let's mind ourselves here as we do Bible study. This this is meant to be read in contrast to verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus is actively casting out demons. And we don't see that in this text. The demon just left, perhaps of its own volition. And what happened in that void? The man got his life back in order. The oppression, the difficulty was relieved for a moment. And he began to put things back in place. He slapped some paint on the walls. Things began to look good from the outside. Now remember, we just saw a man who was mute begin to speak. In Luke chapter 8, we saw a man who was naked and possessed, without a home, healed by Jesus, and at the end, he was clothed in his right mind, reaccepted into his community. To a certain degree, what Jesus describes here in this house being put back in order looks dangerously close to what we've witnessed with two people who have been legitimately healed by Jesus. This superficial and external change has happened. They look better. 
Peace has been restored. Dust has been cleaned up. Have you ever heard about the unique similarities between a coral snake and a king snake? I'm terrified still of snakes. And I tried to get over that by forcing myself to study them and touch them and hold them. And maybe that's why I have anxiety. I don't know. But it didn't work. But I remember learning about the distinctions between the coral snake and a king snake. And they're similar. They're both primarily red-bodied snakes with bands of yellow and black on their body. But there's a difference. A king snake is completely harmless. A coral snake is deadly venomous. And the difference is so slight. The coral snake's pattern is red touching yellow. The king snake is red touching black. There's this little jingle. I have no idea where I learned such a morbid jingle, but, or why, where it would be practical living in Montana. But it goes like this. Red touches black, you're okay, Jack. Red touches yellow, you're a dead fellow. And here's the subtle danger of anything less than Jesus' salvation. Moralism, legalism, politicalism, do-it-yourselfism looks really similar to the gospel. Cleaning up your life, boasting in your Bible reading, being generous, exercising, having good finances looks like a clean house, but on its own, it is deadly. Look back at verse 25 and notice Jesus' description of this house. What was it? Clean, swept, orderly. But what else is it? If we contrast it with the palace we saw earlier, what do we learn? It's unguarded. It's empty. But how did Jesus describe his power? If it was by the finger of God, then what has come? The kingdom of God. The rule, the presence, the dominion, the power, the reign has invaded the space. Where did Jesus end last week? Look what precedes this immediately in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks him? What's the point? True conversion is not renovation by human standards. It's a revolution of who occupies the throne of your heart. True converts need not be anxious about this parable because they know the stronger man has set up shop. The Holy Spirit may take time, to clean the stains on our carpet, and to refit the doors on our hinges. But the very first thing that happens when faith is professed in Jesus Christ is that the king comes and dwells in front of the door. That the stronger man takes up reign in our hearts and none can snatch us out of his hand. We don't need the power of God because we need a boost in the right direction. We don't need the power of the gospel because we need to be saved from our singleness. We don't need the kingdom of God because we want a better life. We need the kingdom of God because we need the presence of its king. He is our comfort and he is our hope. We need our lives not only to have danger removed, but to have what is lovely and life-giving take up residence in our souls. This comes through faith. In Jesus Christ. Jesus is the strong man who comes not only in power, but in lasting permanence. Change follows. And what does this look like? We'll consider Jesse's favorite text this morning, Luke 11, verses 27 through 28. 
As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So what happens here is this woman realizes that Jesus is strong and what does she begin to praise? His earthly lineage, his earthly might. The mom who made him must be a great mom. Moms are all great. But what does Jesus do? He reframes the whole idea of blessing. He says, blessed instead are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed is the one whose might and permanence is not rooted in the legacy of human flesh, but instead in the nearness and grasp they have on the gospel. How do we know the strong man has been defeated by the stronger? How do we know our house is full? Hear the word of God. Hear the message of the gospel and keep it. This has long been, if I want you guys to take one thing away from Luke so far, it's this. What does discipleship look like? Jesus tells us the wise man did this. He came to Jesus, he heard his word, and he did something with it. To hear the word of God and keep it is to be a disciple saved by grace. And this is important because the same word here in verse 28 that's translated keep is the same word in verse 21 translated as guard. In other words, just as the forces of darkness attempted to guard our lives as their treasure, believers who have been freed by the work of Jesus guard and keep the word of God as their treasure. We set up everything to enjoy and ensure that. There's another important Old Testament use of the phrase finger of God. And it also was in the book of Exodus. But in the removal from Egypt, we see the demonstration of God's power. It was on Mount Sinai where God gave his law that we see the promise of preservation and permanence. That God gave them the law and central to it was that you might dwell in the land. That none of the big tribes the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, that they would never come and displace you because this law was your permanence. This was your goodness. And look at what was said in Exodus 31, 18 about the law that Moses had. And when he gave, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. God's power is not only in his saving might to bring us out of Egypt, but also in the power of his ruling government given to his people. If Israel saw the power of God in the finger of God and kept the law, they would be safe forever. Guess what? They didn't do it. Strong nations came. They plundered the disobedient nation of Israel. They were removed from the land, but Jesus as the true Israel came and kept the law. He fulfilled the perfect requirements in and of himself. And now look at what is said of you or anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 3 verse three. Look at how Paul speaks of this. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. 
How do we walk in the power and permanence of God? How do you know if God has done a work in you? You are saved by the power of Jesus. And as a result, you seek to live every area of your life in submission to the word that saves you. We leave no room for the devil because Jesus stands guard at the door and Jesus fills our lives with the fruit of obedience, keeping the word of God because Jesus fulfilled the law and has called us and filled us with the Holy Spirit, which reminds us of our deliverance. You see, the illustrations Jesus uses in Luke 11 are tied to this really specific phenomenon of demon possession. And you might say, I hope maybe you would, I'm not possessed. I don't know anyone who's possessed Therefore, I'm spared from this. I'm good in this area. And demon possession is a real thing. In God's providence, there's not much of it remaining. And actually, when we see in not much of it remaining where the church works, and actually what we see is in frontier nations where the church goes, there's often much demonic opposition. But as the gospel grows, as souls are saved, the forces of darkness fall away. But the biggest threat in this passage was never that he even possessed man, was it? In the very first verse, that issue is dealt with. Demons don't stand a chance. So why is Jesus teaching? Because there's a more subtle danger at play than demon possession. And that is the spiritual blindness of those who constantly call into question the validity and necessity of Jesus. Those who say, I can do it without your help. I'm going to assess who you are and you will answer to me. I don't need you to save me. That is the one who is spiritually blind. That is the one who is enslaved. And that is the one to whom the message of clarity in the gospel is preached even today. This word is the power of God to open your eyes to see to unseal muted mouths and to unshackle clueless prisoners. So today, regardless of where you are, this is the power that saves. And if that power has saved you, hear the message of the gospel and keep it. Find freedom and peace that comes when the stronger man rules on your heart in faith, for this is the life of safety that lasts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you with disruptive power to dethrone the darkness in our hearts, to open our eyes to see that we were meant to be filled with you. Lord, I pray that our lives are different, that nothing remains because it is so filled with the fruit of the Spirit that flows over, that we are growing in immense grace because we have been saved by immense power. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.